This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Escobar is a fugitive in the city he once owned in all but name. He's reduced to sneaking around in the back of a taxi. If he stays in one place too long, the DEA will trace his phone calls. The only people he can really trust are his family. Despite the risks, he calls them repeatedly. By the end of this episode, Pablo Escobar will be lying in a pool of blood on a rooftop in Medellin. Here's how it happened. is tightening around Colombian drug overlord Pablo Escobar. On the run in the city of Medellin, Escobar has always been careful to change location regularly to keep his pursuers guessing. Now, he starts to get sloppy. On December 2nd, 1993, the police intercept a call he makes to his son. DEA special agent in charge Joe Toft can sense the drug lord is beginning to crack. He was so angry at his family not being allowed to leave the country, that he started calling from one site. The elite Colombian police unit, Bloque de Busqueda, or Search Block, are on the case. The commander of Search Block, Colonel Hugo Martinez, has given the job of tracing Escobar's calls to the one man he knows he can trust absolutely, his own son. DEA agent Ken McGee watches on in admiration. The dynamics of this story are incredible when you really think about it. Because Colonel Hugo Martinez, a decorated Colombian police officer, brave, strong, loyal, a man of the utmost integrity, his goal in life was finding Pablo Escobar at that point. He had his son assigned to the unit, and his son was instrumental. And then you have Pablo Escobar, who has a son, communicating via satellite phone, a radio phone. So you have father and son in the world of criminal organization, and you have father and son in the world of law enforcement and what stands for right. The phone trace leads the younger Martinez to a quiet residential street in the neighborhood of Los Olivos. Suddenly, he sees a figure at a second story window. Every officer in the Colombian police and every DEA agent knows that face. Hugo Martinez, young Hugo Martinez, looks up in the window and sees someone that he feels immediately is Pablo Escobar. His heart skips a beat. He had worked on this investigation a lot. He had followed up so many things. He was working very closely with this equipment. He was learning his equipment. And finally, it was about ready to pay off. He was excited, obviously. He says how his heart was racing, how he couldn't wait for the rest of the troops to arrive, how he immediately contacted his superiors, to include his father, to say exactly where he was at and what he had found. 
With just two men accompanying him, Martinez Jr. calls urgently for backup. Searchblock race desperately to his location. When they get there, they don't waste a second. Pablo Escobar escaped so many times in the past. He always had an escape strategy. He always had an escape plan. But the flip side is the police officers had trained and had done so much work and they immediately hit the place. It was very, very well implemented on the spur of the moment because there was no chance to create a operational strategy to attack that one specific building, to make entry. Finally, after all these years, it seems Escobar is cornered. But the Medellin Godfather is still dangerous. There is one thing I will say about Pablo Escobar. On that final day, he went out like a true bad guy. He went out in a blaze of glory. He was armed with two weapons. He had these two semi-automatic pistols. He had a shoulder holster. He was trying to fight his way out of the situation. Pablo Escobar realized that there was no getting out. He didn't surrender. He went out in a blaze of gunfire. Escobar is not alone. His bodyguard, Alvaro de Jesus, AKA El Limon, is the last man by his side. The two fugitives put up a fierce fight. Bullets whistle past the ears of the police officers as Escobar and his henchmen unload their magazines. As their ammunition starts to run low, there's only one thing for it. Escobar and Limon make a desperate last dart for freedom. They jump from a back window onto a roof of another house. Limon goes down. Finally, bullets make contact with the Medellin Godfather. As he staggers across the rooftops, Escobar goes down in a hail of fire. The fatal bullet enters his skull through the ear. On this final day, he went out like a true bad guy. He went out in typical Hollywood fashion. He fired at least 15 rounds at the police officers. He was hit three times. He was wounded. He continued fire. But Pablo Escobar, that day, lived up to his reputation as being a notorious, cold-blooded killer that fought to the very end. At 3.03 p.m., a search block officer is the first to reach Escobar's body. The report he shouts into his radio will never be forgotten by those who heard it. Pablo Escobar was killed on that rooftop. The very first message transferred over the radio was, Viva Colombia, matamos a Pablo Escobar. Long live Colombia, we've just killed Pablo Escobar. In the years to come, internet forums will hotly debate exactly what happened on that Medellin rooftop. Did Pablo go out swinging? Was he executed? Did he commit suicide? The Colombian National Police probably got him fair and square, but we may never know the precise circumstances of his final moments. In any case, Search Block have at last settled the score. The police officers that I met with after they returned to Bogota were euphoric in regards to still living what transpired that day on that rooftop in Medellin, Colombia. It was a moment they were extremely proud of. They 
talked about it. They were elated. They were ecstatic. They were jubilant. You could use many words to describe how they felt, but one word most importantly is that they were proud. In Bogota, 150 miles away, Joe Toff gets the news he has been waiting to hear for six long years. It was just a regular day for me. And um, around three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm in my office and I get a phone call from uh, General Vargas. And he used to call me Joey. He says, Joey, we got Pablo. I said, are you sure? And I says, no, we're sure. Listen, I said, are you 100% sure? And he said, I'm 100% sure. He was just killed. I went out in the hallway and I, as loud as I could be, you know, I mean, it was a big office. We had the biggest office outside of the United States. And I screamed, I said, Pablo is dead, you know. Pablo is finally dead, I was static. Then I ran up the stairs to the ambassador's uh, office. So I said, Mr. Ambassador, Escobar's dead. I mean, I, it was like, whoa, I've been here for almost seven, not uh, six years at the time, you know, and finally happened. It finally happened. The news of Escobar's death is flashed to Washington. For the DEA, it's mission accomplished. We even had a party at the embassy to celebrate what we had worked so hard for, so many months, so many hours, so many leads, so many concerns, so many fears. Because again, this was war. Pablo Escobar was the enemy and his entire organization. So when you look at Pablo Escobar being the enemy and his entire organization, he represented something. He represented evil. He represented how much money could corrupt people, could corrupt governments, could buy off politicians, could influence law, could influence an entire society. So although he was one man, it's what he represented. And for that reason, it is why members of the DEA in that small group, in that embassy in Bogota, Colombia, the day he died on that rooftop in Medellin, Colombia, we celebrated. Journalist Simon Strong is having a lunch with a colleague when he gets the call he's been waiting for. He got a message coming in um, that something was happening and we broke up out of lunch and then raced off to the airport to get on the next plane to Medellin um, and made it up to the chapel where his body was in the coffin, kind of lying in state with his sisters and his mother just nearby, and there were a few local photographers outside. I was sort of sitting on, kneeling on my knees while chatting to his family while Escobar was, was just there that, that night. Um, there was no sense of, of, there could be a violent reaction, no sense of that, and there wasn't one. The next day there was a, a far bigger crowds turned out when his coffin was put in, in, in a larger chapel for people to go and, and, and look at it. There was an outpouring of interest. How much of that was pure curiosity? How much of it was um, you know, a manifestation of grief for a fallen hero? I think very hard to say, um, but you know, a lot of people turned out. So I was aware that this was a huge event. I do not recollect tears per se. Um, there was, I think, there was a sense of inevitability. There was pain. 
and, and shock and a sense that their brother had been let down, that he'd been abandoned, that all the politicians and everybody else who had protected him and who he'd financed had finally cut him adrift. It was incredibly convenient at that moment that, that, that Escobar should no longer exist. For the DEA agents who've worked this case for years, elation is tempered with remorse for the losses their Colombian police colleagues have suffered over the years and admiration for their sacrifice. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Joe Toft had a certificate created to honor those police officers in regards to their contributions towards the search for Pablo Escobar. When those certificates were given to those police officers, numerous police officers had tears in their eyes, tears of pride in regards to what they had accomplished as a team working two nations together and that those individuals were involved in a situation that brought so much proud that a simple piece of paper commemorating their actions given by country attache Joe Toft brought tears to their eyes. I think that is symbolic of how much it meant to them and that in the end, they were victorious and they had great sacrifice along the way. The role of the U.S in terms of providing the, the, the high-tech capability to track the, the phone calls. It was clearly absolutely crucial, but ultimately it came down to an, an effective ground operation. Escobar had nowhere else to run. The, the reach out to his family, I mean, that was when they got him, but it only happened because of a lot of work that the Colombians had done to have Escobar isolated enough to make those calls. Pablo Escobar's death marks the end of a bloody reign of terror in Colombia. For a decade and a half, Escobar has dominated Colombian society, visiting devastating violence upon anyone of his choosing. In the weeks, months, and years after the fateful shootout on the Medellin rooftops, DEA agents reflect on the journey they've been on. Uh, as I said, I started working Escobar in uh, you know late 1970s, and he wasn't taken down until 1993. Uh, and in one capacity or another, I was working uh, against the uh, Colombian cartel for 15 years. So yes, it's uh, it's a good feeling to know you finally you and your colleagues, uh, colleagues from many agencies, uh, accomplished some good work. Pablo Escobar started to make serious mistakes, which later cost him his life, and. We have to remember that any individual that engages in the drug trade, there's only 
two ultimate outcomes, and that's either that you're going to get killed or you're going to go to jail. Those are the only two outcomes that, that they have available to them. Pablo Escobar was sooner or later going to take a fall because if the United States wants you and you have the political will of that particular country, in this case, Colombia, it's a matter of time before you fall, either directly through U.S. law enforcement efforts or mistakes that they make. And Pablo Escobar made a lot of mistakes. I don't like to see a human being lose their life, but the fact of the matter is that he had become a cancer to Colombia, and people were tired of his brand of terrorism because he was a narco-terrorist in every sense of the word. So I was glad because I felt that that would bring some peace to the Colombian people and that my friends within the Colombian National Police were no longer going to lose their lives as a result of this psychopath. Being part of the team that brought down Pablo Escobar, the work was addictive. It really was. You enjoyed it. You knew that you were making history. You knew you were involved in something that was so important than what was only considering tracking a fugitive? No, you realize it stood for a lot more than just taking down one man. It was so addictive in regards to knowing the fact that you were making history, but also the team, the components, the chemistry, the people you worked with, to me, was one of the best feelings I could ever have as a young DEA agent at the time, knowing that we were making history and years from now, people are still talking about it. Escobar, to me, was a monster. I, I wish he would have spent the rest of his life in prison. I mean, that's what I wanted. But um, he deserved what he got. I had the greatest job in the world. I had, I mean, I was the head of the office going after Pablo Escobar. What more can you want if you're a DEA agent? Yeah, it was an incredible experience. I think every DEA agent would, would have liked to have had that job. I was just a lucky one. Never got to meet Escobar. I would have liked to have sat across from him. I would have liked to have talked to him and um, see who he really was. As Bogota chief, Joe Toft gets the credit for bringing down the Medellin kingpin. I'm not the hero of Pablo Escobar's story. I think I might be the face of the Pablo Escobar story for the American side because I was the head of the DEA. But we had an office of tremendous agents up there, not only agents, but analysts. So I wish we could all be the face as a, as, as a group. You know, you hear all of this stuff about Escobar actually being shot by an American, either by a DEA guy or by a Delta guy. That's, none of that's true. None of that's true. The, the cops deserve the credit. They got him. For journalist Guy Gugliotta, Escobar has been on a downward spiral since murdering Justice Minister Rodrigo Lara Bonilla in 1984. 
he was the architect of his own downfall, in my view. Um, before 1984, uh, he was rising in power, uh, had a very, very um, nice political following and something of a political future. But then uh, he made this grave error in uh, attacking the Colombian government directly by killing the justice minister, and the game changed overnight. His ability to become legitimate or his ability to, uh, <clears throat> to function in a very public manner in uh, Colombia just disappeared. He killed newspaper editors. He killed a sitting cabinet minister. He killed the attorney general of uh, Colombia. He uh, paid off a guerrilla group to kidnap the entire Supreme Court and uh, all but uh, five or six of the nine justices died in a, in a, in a total bloodbath. He uh, blew up a, uh, an airliner to kill a presidential candidate. He blew up the headquarters of the uh, Colombian FBI. He uh, was instrumental in, uh, in helping build this enormous cocaine lab in the jungle. In the end, uh, his own audacity, or his own sense of the outrageous, is what trapped him, because others turned against him. And uh, that's, what, that's what brought him down in the end. Pablo Escobar's notoriety lives on. And you'll still see that today. Uh, Escobar has a uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous persona in Colombia even today. He is, he is a Colombian original. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but there is something fundamentally lacking in him. Could Pablo have been stopped? Oh, I think Escobar could have been stopped. I think Escobar could have been stopped. Um, what made Escobar is... Colombia, you know, has been, for the last probably 60, 70 years, has been a, a country in turmoil. There's been a lot of violence there. It's, it's a society that lives in violence because of the uh, guerrilla activity up there. And, and so Escobar, I think, very early in his career, he um, discovered the power of money and corruption and intimidation. You know, he had all the money he could possibly have. It, it didn't have any limits. So consequently, um, he was definitely the richest man in Colombia. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, no one came close to him. He owned thousands and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of acres of the best land in Colombia, buildings, you know, office buildings. But his economic power then, you know, helped tremendously. But what really put him in control was his ability to manipulate people through fear. And I think at a very early stage, well, he was not as powerful yet, where he was, he hadn't attained that uh, level of economic uh, power. Um, it could have been stopped, but it didn't happen. For many involved in the hunt for Escobar, his death represents the pinnacle of their career. They can take off their badges and hand in their firearms, knowing they've seen the end of the world's biggest narco-terrorist. But life in Colombia goes on. And so does the cocaine trade. In the years after Pablo's death, the Cali cartel in Colombia's southwest 
will rise to the fore. As I'm sipping on my champagne there, you know, I'm, I'm getting this sick feeling in my gut. Because, yeah, this is a momentous day. We got Pablo. But who really won this one, you know? Did uh, Cali just win the big battle? And, um, and then I started the thoughts about the corruption aspect and the whole thing, and you know, and, and um, so it was a bittersweet time for me. I felt a tremendous load off my shoulders, but at the same time, I felt that, you know, I wish we wouldn't have shared this celebration with Cali. And I'm sure there was a celebration with Cali going on at the same time. There's a contrarian in me which does view him as in some way having had the sins of his country heaped on him and then everybody conveniently thinking that with his departure, you know, the sins are over. And, and that's absolutely not the case. There was hope that it spelled the end of the, you know, the, the, the era of civilian terrorism, which it did not by the way, it did continue both from the guerrillas and connected to the other drug traffickers as well. But it was it spelled the end of the the main the main era of bombing. There was a very, very quick change of focus by the police to focus on the Cardi cartel. I mean almost instantaneous move to set up a blocky de Buscada in Cali. At the same time there was also a battle and adversity between the, the surviving lieutenants of Escobar and the Peppers. There was some slugging out taking place as well and a jockeying for position. No one individual will command the authority Escobar had. But cocaine will continue to flow from South America to the U.S. and across the Atlantic to Europe. I don't know what you'll learn from the Escobar question because history tends to repeat itself. I mean, there is no Pablo Escobar in Colombia right now. Um, and there is no Pablo Escobar anywhere, I think, and hopefully there wouldn't be another one. Colombia thinks are much better now. I don't get the feeling that the traffickers are necessarily controlling the country. When I was in Colombia, there was no doubt that um, Escobar, through intimidation and through terrorist uh, activity, um, was pretty much in control. The war on drugs rages on. After all the lives lost in the hunt for Escobar, was it all worth it? The answer is unequivocally yes. Uh, you hear a lot of people complaining about uh, we're losing the war on drugs. It's been a uh, monumental waste of resources and manpower. Uh, and that those arguments come from both conservatives on the extreme right and liberals on the extreme left in our government. Uh, but the mission of DEA is to bring to justice those responsible for the illicit trafficking of drugs. Did it take us a while to bring these people to justice? Absolutely. Uh, but it was through a, the dedication uh, and the sweat, if you will, and blood of a lot of uh, dedicated people uh, that we finally brought those people to justice. So in that sense, by all means, DEA has been a very, very successful organization. J. 
just because the Medellin cartel has been destroyed, the Cali cartel has been destroyed. Uh, there are other members in Colombia uh, that have uh, developed their own cartels, are still producing cocaine. And unfortunately, uh, there are people still in the United States of America and in Europe and elsewhere in the world that are uh, looking for the end product. So as long as there's a customer, there's going to be somebody there to provide the, uh, the supply. So what happened to the key players in this story who survived? Colonel Hugo Martinez of the Bloc de Basqueda retired in Bogota. Carlos later, Escobar's old ally, is still incarcerated in the U.S. The surviving Escobars fled to Mozambique, then Brazil in the years following Pablo's death. They settled in Argentina. His wife, Maria Victoria Hinao, lives in solitude. Pablo's daughter, Manuela, lives under an assumed name. Little is known about her. Escobar's son changed his name to Sebastian Marroquin. He's an architect in Buenos Aires. He's been vocal about his father's legacy and his desire for forgiveness from his victims. Pablo's four pet hippos remain on the site of his lavish ranch, Hacienda Napoles. Over the years they bred. Today, dozens roam the hillsides of Antioquia. Escobar's infamous self-built prison, La Cathedral, is now the site of a monastery. In 1995, the heads of the Cali cartel were arrested. But cocaine is still manufactured and trafficked in Colombia on a massive scale. The drugs trade goes on under the leadership of various individuals and cartels. 26 years on from his death, in the annals of history, Pablo Escobar stands out a mile. In the words of Guy Gugliotta, he's a Colombian original. Scrap that. A world original. Last word goes to DEA agent Ken McGee. I reflect and I try and compare him to any criminal that people in the United States might recognize as a notable figure, Al Capone. Al Capone, in my opinion, might have been a bodyguard for Pablo Escobar, might have been a driver, might have been something of a much lower status where Al Capone was involved in a murder here and there to maintain his empire at the time. Pablo Escobar was responsible for thousands of police officers dying, thousands of politicians being feared, corrupted, or murdered, thousands of innocent people living in fear. The world will never see a criminal as big as Pablo Escobar again. He was ruthless, he was a villain, he was notorious, he was a murderer, he was a terrorist. He had every component that represents evil woven into the fabric of what made Pablo Escobar. When you look at Pablo Escobar and the devastation that he caused in the country, whether it be bombings, whether it be the murders of so many people, so many police officers, so many politicians, so many innocent civilians, so many other traffickers, so many human beings in general, and the fear that he placed, and he relished in it, and he enjoyed it. The world will never see someone that big again. A man that could blow up an aircraft without hesitation. A man that could have a political candidate running for president assassinated on stage, what was referred to at the time as the Bobby Kennedy of Colombia. 
a man that would bring people into his prison that he made and murder them and torture them. The world will never see somebody like that again. It can't happen. All of these lessons have been learned because of people like Pablo Escobar. There will be drug traffickers, there will be other criminals, but no one will grow to have that amount of power. The next episode of Real Narcos truly is stranger than fiction. It's about a guy who knew Pablo. He worked for him, smuggled for him. His name is Barry Seal. He's an American, born and bred in the state of Louisiana. Tom Cruise played him in a Hollywood blockbuster movie. He was a risk taker, he was an adventurer, he loved adrenaline, he was charming, he was a bit of a ladies man, but he looked nothing like Tom Cruise. Uh, the physical difference, I mean, he looked more like John Candy than Tom Cruise, who's 5'9 and 240 pounds. He's the oversized, thrill-seeking pilot from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who smuggled cocaine for the Colombian cartels. Barry Seal is the biggest homegrown drug smuggler America has ever seen. He had flown in Vietnam for the U.S. Special Forces, and he could land just about anywhere. He was perfect for what the Medellin cartel at its inception needed, which was skilled pilots who were willing and able to go into some very rough territory. I mean, it takes a pretty big uh, determination and imagination to be a, a, a guy living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to figure out how to hook up with the Medellin cartel and be on a first-name basis with some of the most dangerous and wanted men in the world. He's a big guy, but he handles an airplane like nobody else. He's scared of nothing except jail. In a bid to avoid jail time, he'll flip and become the DEA's most prized informant getting closer to the heart of the Medellin cartel than anyone else before him. He thought he was smarter than everybody else. He had that arrogance that he could get out of any situation. He was always a guy who didn't think the rules applied to him. The epitaph on his tombstone says it best. It calls him a rebel adventurer, the likes of whom in previous days made America great. Next time on Real Narcos. Real Narcos is a Noiser podcast and World Media Rights co-production hosted by me, John Cuban. The series is created by Pascal Hughes, produced by Joel Duddle. It's been edited by James Tyndale, music by Oliver Baines from Flight Brigade. The sound mixer is Tom Pink. And this is Noiser's first ever podcast, so we would love to know what you think. If you have a moment, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 